Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. We are going to read the Bible now, and we're going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, from verse 18 to 22. It will be on the screen behind me, or you can find it in your Bibles as well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, from verse 18. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Thanks, Ben. My name's Ross. If we haven't met, uh, it is great series to be going through the fruits of the spirit. And um, as one person in our growth group said, every week when we open up this sort of challenge about who we are to be, I hate this series. I hate it because it is so confronting. It's challenging about who we are and test how how do we sort of present ourselves, not just before others, but before God. It is a challenging series. So faithfulness is another one that I find uh, as a preacher particularly challenging to actually work through it during the week and come before you to go, how am I going? So I hope you find this same, uh, be on the same journey this morning about how getting into God's word, how to drawing near to him, to actually challenge us. What makes us faithful? How do we live that out? Let me pray and then we'll dig a bit deeper. Dear Father God, just thank you for this journey through the fruits of the Spirit. Thank you for showing us what it looks like to be one of your followers, to live out the the fruit of the Spirit. Lord, please help us today again as we draw near to you to have a close look at who you are and your faithfulness and how we can be encouraged and fired up about having that same trustworthiness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me ask the question. Well, how do you think you measure up as being trustworthy? Are you a faithful kind of person? I think if we evaluate ourselves and how we're going in being true to our word and being faithful to others, being truthful, living out what we say we're going to do, probably think we're going all right. Until you ask the people around us, what do other people think of you about your trustworthiness? Now, uh, I was interested, I'm always interested when surveys come out to question trustworthiness, particularly in light of your career path, your, your, um, who you are. Last year, uh, there was a global trustworthy index survey put out, 28 countries, 18 professions, uh, just to thank you, how do you measure up? It's across the world, but also I'm interested in how do we measure up in Australia? For me, particularly, how do pastors uh, clergy people, is their language, how do they measure up? Uh, how untrustworthy are we? Where, where do we measure up on the list? 
I'm not sure what you think of the top one. I've got the top four in front of us. Top, top one, most untrustworthy professions in Australia. Top one, politicians. Over half the population will not trust a politician. I'm not sure if you're that way inclined, but man, nobody's going to trust you. Number two, advertising executives. Half the people say, I'm not going to trust any advertising, anything they say. It's just not trustworthy. Number three? Number three, journalists. Journalists reporting the truth. It's like, no, no, 40% of people says, I'm just not going to trust it. I'm not going to trust anything you say, even before I read it. And number four, pastors, 39%. Makes me feel good, doesn't it? 39% of people are not even going to trust anything that I say. I'm not going to take it personally, but I'll get over it. But there's one more stat they had. It's a bit harder to handle. 26% uh, people said they do trust a pastor. 26% must be you guys here, trust me. However, 42% of people said they'd trust a person on the street. So, you trust a person on the street nearly twice as much as what people would trust a pastor. It sort of puts things in perspective a little bit, doesn't it? But in a sense, it's not really a surprise, not just for pastors, but I think for Christians in general, that this is how we're perceived. Because there's a lot of experience and stories about people seeing how church is untrustworthy, how they can't, uh, the, the church doesn't live up to what they say. You know, they talk about love, but we're just as self-centred and self-serving as the rest of the world, or worse, we talk the big game, but we don't live it out, that we're not actually faithful to our word or trustworthy uh, there was a guy, uh, Gandhi, one of the leaders of the, uh, the Hindu faith back last century. Uh, he investigated all kinds of faiths, investigated Jesus, said, I read the Bible, I like Jesus, I like what he's got to say. In fact, I'd be a Christian except for the Christians. They turned him off it. Nice words, but they don't live it out. Even when you see the news and you see, I, I kind of cringe every time the church is mentioned in the news because you know it's going to be a story about corruption or abuse. It's never a good news story. It's just, oh, no, it's just disappointing. And I bet even you, for most of us here in this room, have probably got some story about your church experience, whether it's here or elsewhere, where you've been let down. They talk the big game. They talk about love. They talk about community. But they're not trustworthy. They're not faithful in that area. So we get disappointed in that. Now, there's something in this fruit of the spirit stuff that is not just about you need to be better. You need to be a nicer person. You need to be more honest. It's actually more than that. There's some connection here that says actually what God is offering actually empowers you to be that sort of person. That actually fires up something that's more than just be a better moral person, but actually to be more like Jesus himself. So that's what we're going to spend most of our time on this morning is to have a look at Jesus' faithfulness, Jesus' faithfulness to his Father, Jesus' faithfulness to us, to realise what this actually looks like and how that then empowers us to be that kind of faithful person. So we're going to go on a bit of a journey, looking at Jesus. And it's nearly Christmas, so this is a good time to, place to start. Matthew chapter 1, we're sticking to the Gospels at this point, talking about... Um, Mary had fallen pregnant. An angel comes and appears before Joseph to say, hey, you need to marry Mary, take her home. 
uh, because the, the baby she's got is from the Holy Spirit. And then it says in verse 21, she will give birth to a son, you're to name him Jesus, because he will save people from their sins. This is big, because this is actually the mission statement for Jesus. This is his purpose. This is why he's come into the world, to save sinners from their sins, because sin is a problem. Sin is all the stuff we do that breaks our relationship with, the God, with God, with it father god particularly so we don't do the things we should do and we do the things we shouldn't do and that offends him and you know when we offend people there's a break in the relationship and then when there's a break in relationship with god that's a problem that sin has to be dealt with and jesus come into the world to deal with the sin to restore the relationship with the father now the question is then this is the start of matthew and I'm sure if you've grown up in church and you're very familiar with the Gospels and the life of Jesus, we, go, we know this is how this is going to play out. But in fact, if you look into it fresh eyes, you're actually reading the start of this Gospel asking the question then, can Jesus fulfil this promise? Is Jesus trustworthy to deal with my sin? Is he willing to go all the way to the cross? Is he willing to live the perfect life to then be killed on the cross for my sin, the perfect person paying for the debt that I've got. Can Jesus do it? Can I trust him to do it? Is he faithful to do it? And this is how the story plays out because soon after we're told this in Matthew and all the Gospels, he goes straight to Jesus as a man. This is before his ministry officially starts. He goes into the desert and Matthew records it like this. In Matthew chapter 4, uh, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, nobody around out into the countryside to be tempted by the devil after fasting 40 days and 40 nights you can imagine missing one meal is hard for me 40 days and 40 nights of missing meals he was hungry bit of an understatement right so the tempter satan comes to him and says if you are the son of god tell these stones to become bread now what is it with these temptations i reckon for this one it's just a bit of fun it's like have a bit of fun you're hungry, you're starving, right? Yeah, it's hungry. No one's around. Nobody's going to see you do. Just turn these stones into bread. You have the power. You are the Son of God. If you're a king, prove it. Just turn this into bread. No one will ever see. But then Jesus says, no, no, I'm not going to do it. That's not my mission. I'm not here just to have a bit of fun, in a sense. So he says, no, I'm not going to do what you're tempting me to do. That's not my mission. And he turns his back on it. The second temptation is when Jesus is at the temple in Jerusalem. And he's, uh, the temple is a built-up place. So he's on one of the highest spots on the temple. And Satan says to him again, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. And he quotes an Old Testament scripture, How the angels will save your fall. Now, this is for fame. If the last one was for a bit of fun do what satan says not god says this is for fame because remember this is before jesus is gone into ministry uh, a public ministry so this is like you're a nobody from a nowhere town in bethlehem you've rocked up in jerusalem if you want to get people's attention if you want to become famous overnight and get credibility wow this the angels have saved this guy from falling you're a somebody and we know how everybody wants to be a somebody. We know how the, the way social media works now. Everybody's looking for that overnight success. Everybody wants to be known and, and thought highly of. Jesus could do it in this one move. 
jump off the building. All the, the priests and the religious leaders would be looking. So they're not going to believe him later, but they will see it. And surely they would be impressed. <coughs> Excuse me. But Jesus says, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. That's not my mission to save people from sinners, is to become famous like that. So he turns his back. Another temptation. The third temptation. Jesus is in a very, on a very high mountain. And Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the world and splendor. Look at it all. It's amazing. As far as the eye can see, I will give this to you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Now, if the other ones were for fun, for fame, this is like for fortune. Now, remember, Jesus, he's, he's born into a peasant family, like a poor family in this poor little town. Bethlehem was a bit of a nowhere kind of place. He was a tradie. He was a carpenter. He's now about 30 years old he's a single man he's got no house no assets to his name we don't hear him driving around a ute what trade he doesn't have a ute he's got no he's got nothing to his name he's about to start a three-year preaching tour and he's got no money behind him this would solve a lot of problems right i've got to get a message out there if i had the funds now you can't say we don't like overnight success have the funds money fixes all our problems we tend to think even to the point of a couple of weeks ago, Australia had, uh, in Australia, the, the lotto had jackpotted to $150 million. It was estimated every second person. So 50% of Australians bought tickets for that $150 million. So a lot of us think overnight uh, fortune is a good deal. It's very tempting. And for Jesus, uh, with fresh eyes, yeah, yeah, actually, this, this could make his journey a whole lot easier. He says, it's not my mission. That's not going, I'm here to save sinners from their sin. That's not my mission. And he says no to him. Now, it's interesting to just soak on that just for a little bit, just to realise how often for us, how tempting it is to break our promises, break our faithfulness for, you know, do I do the hard road and become a servant and uh, help other people or do I have a bit of fun for myself? A bit of fame that I pursue that above others, or a fortune that I go and build my, my resume and my, my wealth in other things. Lots of people will give up on their, their marriages, they'll give up on their families to pursue these things, they'll even give up on their faith to pursue these things. So these temptations are very, very real, not just for Jesus, but for each of us today. These temptations, you're not the first to be tempted in these areas. Jesus was there uh, and he said, no, that's not my mission. I'm not doing that. But that's not the end of the temptations for Jesus. There's a whole bunch. I want to point out a couple more to you. We pick up at a point, Matthew follows the story then and Jesus is with the 12 disciples and he says to them, I, uh, so this is Matthew 16 from 21, from that time on Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem he must suffer many things and at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed on the third day be raised again. This has come as a shock to the, to the disciples. Jesus is their, their master, their Lord, their hero. They've seen him do all these things. They've heard him speak. He is the one, the king, the new Messiah who is going to lead them into being God's people, people God called them to be. So Peter was a bit 
offended that Jesus said, it's like he's giving up. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me, whatever. But Jesus is like, no, 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 pulled him aside. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Now, Peter's on this thing of like, you are the king, you are the Lord, you're our hope, our future. Remember there, this is first century Judean countryside, Roman Empire, sitting under Roman rule. They're, they're trying to be as God's people, as the nation of Israel. They're not there. Maybe this guy is going to lead us as a nation to be God's people again. Never. I'm not going to let... He says, no, Jesus. If Jesus dies, their leader dies and the movement ends. That's how it seems, humanly speaking. Or even for Peter, that sense of loyalty. No, no, you're truly Lord, you're truly King and I will do anything to protect you. That's a good sign, isn't it? of loyalty. That's what we all want, people to, to give their life for ours. Or is it even for Peter a little bit of, hey, if there is no Jesus, we're a nobody. Peter was a fisherman. Do I go back to fishing where at least I'm a somebody hanging out with Jesus? I'm prominent in this circle. There's a whole lot of reasons why Peter could be saying this, but at the heart of it, it's like, this is bad news. This is bad for your resume. You can't die. It's not good. You can't lead a uh, a revolution if you're dead according to Peter but then Jesus turns to Peter and says get behind me Satan you are a stumbling block for me you do not have in mind the concerns of God but mere human concerns now you gotta go, what's going on here for Jesus he's talking to Peter but he's calling him Satan I'm not sure where the ears started to grow on Peter oh, it's like horns sorry and a tail it's like all of a sudden Peter's like changed or is it is he looking at Peter but seeing Satan at work in the picture or is it he's talking to both Peter and Satan because that's the way they work. I think it's probably both that Peter's come up with these great ideas. I'm going to stop you from dying because you need to be alive to, to push things forward for God's people. He could see. But also it's Satan at work. It's Satan at work and it's a stumbling block. It's another temptation for Jesus to go, yeah, you're right. Why would I go to Jerusalem and be mocked and killed when I've got loyal followers who can protect me and we can lead this revolution a different way? But for Jesus, he says, no, get behind me, Satan. This is another temptation of Satan to get him off track, off the mission. He says, you are a stumbling block. This is a real temptation. It's not just Jesus. We often think Jesus is, is bigger than all these temptations in, in just their nothing. No, no, Jesus said, this is a stumbling block. This is why. You do not have the things of God in mind, but the things of man. That's not my mission. My mission is to save people from their sins. And what Peter's suggesting is another way. Kind of appealing, but it's not the mission. He's faithful and true to the mission. And then when, it feels like when we get to this point, Jesus is on the home straight to the cross. It all gets... You know, everything goes smoothly according to what Jesus knows is going to happen from here. But actually, there's a little thing that happens which is a real challenging point. In the Gospel of John, John chapter 19, Jesus has been arrested. He gets put before the officials. Pilate is the governor of Judea. So he, he's like in charge now. Jesus in the hands of him. Pilate takes Jesus, has him flogged. So just beaten like he's been dragged in he's been accused of claiming to be a king the son of god let's flog him the soldiers mock him then tie together a crown of thorns so you can imagine that being pushed into your head with the thorns going into your head uh, with the blood starting to drip down 
Then they clothed him in a robe, went up to him again and again, Hail, King of the Jews. So they're mocking him. Oh, you're a king. We'll treat you as a king. You've got the crown of thorns. And then they just beat him in the face. So now he's getting beaten up for it. This is not even the cross yet. This is not even the hard stuff. This is just the warm-up. But it sounds horrific. It's horrific what's going on. Pilate looks at him and goes, look, takes him out to the people and goes, look, do you really want to kill this guy? Because he's not much of a king. Do you really want to kill this guy? This is an opportunity for Jesus to get his supporters up to to show him some support or encouragement. But what does the crowd say? Crucify him. As soon as they saw him, crucify him. You can imagine at that point, Jesus being physically you know, beaten up, beaten and battered in pain, having his backs ripped open from the whipping as well, to then having no moral support at all. Everybody wants you dead. But then Pilate brings him back into the palace ask him a couple more questions but then sort of it's like everything slows down at this point Pilate comes up close to him in the palace in the room and says don't you realize I have the power to either free you or crucify you what do you want what do you want surely the image is I have the power just to sneak you out of town get on a donkey ride up in the hills somewhere to a quiet place, live a quiet life away from all this mess and chaos. What's it going to be? That's a real temptation, isn't it? He hasn't even gone to the cross yet. He hasn't even done the hard stuff. But with blood dripping down his face, his back torn open, everybody outside wants him dead. It's very tempting to go, save sinners, stuff them, they deserve it, and walk out. But at this moment, he doesn't fall for that temptation. He's faithful. That is not my mission. My mission is to save people from their sins. So he proceeds and then gets led out of town, gets nails put through his hands, into a cross, gets hung up, left to die. And he dies the death for sinners. It's a hard road to choose, isn't it? I'm going to choose to give up my rights, my comforts, my dreams and desires. I'm going to give all that up for the sake of others. Because that's the mission. And he was true to his word. He was faithful to it. And he rose again uh, three days later to show that he had conquered sin, he had conquered death, to fulfill the mission, to save sinners from their sin. My sin was nailed to that cross because of Jesus. I have certainty of the resurrection because Jesus rose from the dead and defeated death. I have hope because of what Jesus did. If Jesus hasn't been faithful, we're all wasting our time. If Jesus hadn't been true to his word, sticking to the mission, what hope have we got if we can't trust God? I don't know how that makes you feel. That somebody would love you so much that not just these little sacrifice token kind of things, but genuineness, I'm going to lay my life down for you, that should make us feel, wow, this guy really genuinely means it. To live it out, not just with words, but his actions to give up his life for me and stick to it, to be truthful to it. When he had so many other options to pull out, he stuck to it. It says something about his love for us, doesn't it? It's about his character. He is faithful, true to his word, but his love for us as a recipient of that faithfulness. 
He loves me. And it's what I find about this, it's not just a story of 2,000 years ago. God's faithfulness to continues on for us today. <clears throat> I just pulled out a few verses. on. Uh, so this promise that we just saw, uh, God sent Jesus to save us from our sins, done through the cross. But what's he doing in my life here and now? So there's a whole lot. We'll just do uh, four, verses, four sections uh, from different New Testament letters. <clears throat> so Corinthians, this is a Bible reading we had. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 from verse 18. But as surely as God is faithful, God is faithful, right? We can trust him. He's trustworthy. Our message to you is yes, no. There's this yes, no language, but Paul's saying, be true to your word, this faithfulness. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. It's Jesus. And so to him, the amen is spoken to us for the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. This is, so what does that mean for us here and now, sitting in this room? What is God doing for me in my life now? This is a promise and God is faithful to fulfil it. He makes, you, um, makes us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, anointing what you do to kings, which sets you apart from everybody. You're not of this world anymore. You're part of God's family, God's kingdom. You're as kings. He has set a seal of ownership on us. This seal of ownership is, is you are in God's family now. And often this seal of ownership is to do with the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say that. He has put his spirit, his God's own Holy Spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. That's what he's doing in your life now. He's investing you. You have the Holy Spirit when you believe in him. And you have that guarantee of eternal life. That's what he's doing in your life now. And he's faithful to it. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. That's to, to mature you and grow you and to make you more like God himself. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you go, oh, for me to do that, that's a high bar. For me to be blameless before Jesus... But he goes on to say... The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Jesus is covering your sin. Jesus is, is uh, making you um, righteous and pure for that day when he comes to take you in heaven. God is faithful. He will do it. It's another promise. 2 Thessalonians 3.3. 3. But the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. It's not, how am I going to fight off Satan? How am I going to No, no. God has promised and he is faithful. He will do it. 1 John 1 verse 9 says if we confess our sins he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness what that's saying is there's no surprises on the day and i'm not sure how it's going to work out but if you uh, walk up to the pearly gates of heaven and you start to have that wonder and those doubts have i done enough am i good enough is he going to let me in this is saying, no, no, God is faithful. If you confess your sins, he will forgive. He will wipe your sins clean. When he looks at you, he opens the gates of heaven like you're a welcome long lost son or daughter, welcome into the family because of Jesus, because it's Jesus' faithfulness and what he's done. How does that make you feel that God is faithful to you in that? Not just what Jesus had done, that was significant, back 2,000 years ago, but what he's doing in your life now, that you're being presented perfect and clean 
God's promised it and he's faithful and he's doing it now, right now in your lives. This is what it looks like. I know for me, when somebody does something for me, I feel loved. You know, the five love languages, the acts of affirmation, or words of affirmation and the acts showing love. It's like you feel valued, you feel included, connected. This is what God is doing in his faithfulness. If God is not faithful, if God is not trustworthy, we are wasting our time, putting our hopes in nothing. But God is faithful and he is transforming each of us all the time. This is something significant and it's something that changes the whole be trustworthy, be, be more faithful. More, it's way more than just be a better person and be better, have better morals. It's actually, no, no, if I've been shown this love, if God is still working at me day in, day out, I can show this love to others because that's the sort of person he's making me to be truthful, dependable, trustworthy, faithful. It's an ongoing thing. Now, how this works out in our life, how does it look for you and me to be faithful and trustworthy? Now, there's, there's two aspects to this. I just want to pull up two passages. How we pursue being faithful. Now, this is a verse from Revelation chapter 13. And it's, it's a letter to encourage believers in hard times. And it says, if anyone is to, to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. It's not the greatest start, is it? But he says this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Because our patience and faithfulness are tested in hard times, aren't they? We saw that with Jesus going to the cross. He knew the cross was going to be painful and hard on him. But yet he was faithful and true and pushed towards it. He did not give up on his father. He did not give up on the mission. He was faithful and true. Now for us, there are hard times in our lives that are going to test your faithfulness to God. That are you... That there's an element of... God needs to prove himself to me. We get in this mindset. How do I know that God is trustworthy? If I'm going to put my faith in God, how do I know that he's going to come through? I'm going to trust him. Is God trustworthy? He's got to prove himself to me. And that's a genuine thing. There's an element of thing. God's got to prove faithful to me. But then at some point, God says, well, I've done all this for you. Are you going to trust me? Are you going to be faithful to me? And in hard times like this, when the world looks bad, whether it's uh, persecution that's described here or just the trials of life, are you going to trust God? Are you going to be patient and faithful, just cling to him? Or sometimes it's going to feel like, I don't know whether it's worth it. If I give it up, I'll have the easier life. Maybe giving it up for the, the fun, the fame or the fortune, the way a lot of people give up their faith whether it's hard times or good times. There's lots of things that are going to test your word in saying, I'm going to trust in Jesus. Easy to say in this room, but during the week, are you going to trust in Jesus for good and the bad times? There's a faithfulness to God that he's looking from us. There's also a faithfulness to each other. Uh, lots of verses. I just picked out 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others 
as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. There's something about the Christian faith that it's God-centred first. Our lives revolve around Jesus as our Lord. But second, it's others. Put others above yourself. We live for others, building up others and put ourselves at the bottom. And to live that out, that's a challenge. That's a huge challenge. To be able to... It's just much harder than we think. Um, we had a wedding here yesterday. Um, Emily and Meadows got married. And it's always refreshing when you go to a wedding to hear the wedding vows and the promises that they make to each other. You know, things like, um, <clears throat> I'll be there for you to have and to hold, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, un cherish until parted by death. It's that promise that sounds really nice on the wedding day, that I will do these things. But then you go, well, how faithful are you in fulfilling it? So I think we've thrown around language a bit. To be unfaithful in your marriage, it's commonly thought you've had an affair. You've actually, you know, sexually been unfaithful that way. And faithfulness means just staying with your partner. But in fact, when you look at these promises saying, I will love and cherish in all situations, in all circumstances, it's not just words, it's actions, isn't it? It's our actions that this is really tested. So, for a husband who's, you know, just loves sitting on the lounge and, you know, not helping out in the, around the house and stuff, it's easy to go, well, I haven't been unfaithful, have I? I'm not an unfaithful husband, thinking it's, you know, you've run off. No, I'm here, aren't I? That's not faithfulness, though, is it? Because you're not doing anything. Faithfulness is actually doing something. It's more than just turning up and being there. It's actually building the other person up. But this is how I think we get caught up a little bit in our faithfulness. You're here, aren't you, today? Fantastic. That's a great start. But what does it mean to be faithful in what this verse says? That we use whatever gift you've been given... Uh, now sort of left a bit open, what is the gifts he's talking about? It could mean things like financial stuff. He uses that sort of language, talk about finances. Share your finances with others, be generous. You're good stewards of your finances. Do with it wisely. Is it all yours or is it to share around, to build the kingdom? But it's gifts of all that. It's our, what God has given us, our talents, our time as well that we serve each other, put others above ourselves in those situations as well. But it's not just be a good person or be a better person. You're actually stewards of God's grace in whatever that looks like. You're actually doing God's work in building others up. This is huge. This is like a promise that we have for each other as a church family that we will serve each other with, with God's grace in its various forms, with our gifts. And that's a big call. That's a challenge. We use this language, the family language, a lot in this church because I think it's a great description. It's biblical, but it's also, you know, family has this dynamics. We're not best friends with everybody. You don't choose everybody, but in your family, the, we just tolerate. There's a level of tolerance and exception, acceptance. You're one of us. So therefore, there's this love for each other in the family. That's what we do now as God's church as God's family. 
One of the most encouraging things I find, I've found in this church, is when this is practised out. It fills your tanks, it fills my tanks, like I mentioned before. When somebody does something for you that's unexpected, you're not holding it to them, you promised me you would do this, it's not like that, but they go, let me do this to help you. Let me shoot you a message, just say, hey, I'm thinking of you today. It's like, it fills the tanks, even if it's only a text message. It's like, that's awesome that they're actually thinking of me. Just a message, go, hey, I prayed for you today, I know this week's a big week, just thanks for doing it. It lifts you, doesn't it? It gives you that, that experience that we experience from Jesus to know that when Jesus gave his life for us, for you sitting in here, it's like, wow, that he loves me, he accepts me, and he generously made the sacrifice for me. That can be as simple as a text message. It can be serving on teams, like Ben talked about, the providing for morning tea and how hard that team was. It's for, for serving each other. It's that we should be encouraged by that and built up by that and go, this is a place I want to be. This is different to the world because I can see everybody's building us up making me a better person, filling me when I'm down, filling my tanks when I'm empty. This is what we do for each other. And I can tell you that the most exp some of the highlights of that in my life have happened through people in this church. I'm married to one of those people. She's great at filling other people's tanks. That's the place I want to be. That's a good motivation for faithfulness, isn't it? Rather than going, they're not true to the word, they're unloving, they haven't done that to me, but how am I being faithful to others? How can I build others up? And if we have that community, others will be building me up as well. That's God's plan for the church. That's why we are to be faithful. That's why it's important. We love being the receiver, but how about we be the giver? It's a big call to be a part of a church, but it's great joy as well. So let me encourage you, think about our faithfulness. Not just what we... We're not bad people, but sometimes we're just not doing anything. We're sitting on the lounge. Let's be active in this, this vow to each other that we serve each other faithfully with, through the grace of God with his various forms. Let's do that. Let me pray for each of us in that journey with each of us who've got different challenges, I know. Let's pray together. Dear Father God, just thank you for your love for us. Again, in these passages, we realise the richness of the gospel, the story of Jesus, the sacrifices that he made. It would be very tempting for him to give up on us, a bunch of sinners deserving death. The Lord, through his vow to save sinners from their sin, that you made the sacrifice faithfully and trustworthy. You went all the way to the cross for us. Lord, I just pray that we would enjoy that moment to know that we are loved, we are accepted, that when we confess our sins, you do save us, guaranteed, because you're a trustworthy God. But Lord, help us to be a family here, a church family, with our brothers and sisters who serve each other that we are faithful to our words, faithful to our promises, our vows, faithful to being the people of God you've called us to be, that we be that shining light in the world, that refuge where people who are seeing that self-serving, self-centred lives around us, they say, this church is different. This church has got something that I want and I want to be a part of and it's all because of Jesus. Lord, move us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.